Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. Um, we normally release podcast episodes every other week, um, but because of what happened in Israel over this past weekend, um, I wanted to release a podcast episode to kind of go over it because I know that there are a lot of Christians that are wondering, they have questions about a lot of this stuff. So I'm going to try and give some broad overview for those who are very unfamiliar with the Palestinian conflict. Um, and then I'll go into a little bit about how we as Christians, um, what perspective we should have, I think, and how we can pray or how we can get involved in any other way. Okay. All right. So first of all, um, just a, a quick history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, you know, the Israelites were cast out of the land 2,000 years ago, okay? Um, this happened because Jesus prophesied that, this is in Matthew 24, 25, that the temple would be destroyed, and he warned them, and the New Testament apostles warned Christians about antichrists, okay? Antichrists are counterfeit Christs or counterfeit messiahs. Christ is just the Greek translation for the Hebrew word messiah, okay? And so the messiah is the chosen one that would lead Israel right into its glorious destiny, something like that, right? A very shorthand version of messiah, all right? But um, Jesus warned about those that would claim, okay, to come in his name. He said, don't believe them. Right, and what happened in AD seventy is that there was another antichrist, another person who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, that came, and the nation of Israel backed that person. It led to a revolt against the Roman Empire, and the Romans came in, and they surrounded Jerusalem with armies. And at that point, you know, the believers, those who believed that Jesus was the true Messiah. Um, remembered his words that he had said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the hills, okay? And that that's exactly what happened. The believers fled. Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jewish people were scattered, okay? For 2,000 years, approximately, they have been scattered. It's called the Great Diaspora. And, um, you know, Jews have, there's, there's pockets of Jews everywhere. Obviously, Europe was one of the most common places um, that Jews went to during the Diaspora, and that kind of culminated in what happened in the 20th century, all right? And if you study Jewish history, what you'll see is that there was widespread persecution against Jews um, all throughout history, all right? And um, leading up to World War II, there were, you know, there was this question, it was called the Jewish question, all right? And this is this was all throughout really the 19th century and early 20th century of Europe, the question of what do we do with the Jews, okay, because there's so much hatred um, within various European populations towards Jews. What do we do about them? And there had been a movement amongst the Jews called the Zionist movement, and this was the belief and the hope that they could find a new Jewish homeland. And initially they were looking in, like, the Americas. They were thinking, you know, maybe somewhere in Central or South America they could establish a new Jewish homeland. Um, But the idea of going back to the historic homeland of Israel really started to catch steam in the late um, 19th century, all right? And this was called the Zionist movement. And we should be clear, this was actually not a religious 
Jew movement. Okay, this was actually led by non-religious Jews. All right, but there was this incredible movement. Many of them started to move to that that region. Okay, and at that time, the region was controlled by the Ottoman Empire. This is this is before World War One. All right, and Jews started to move there. They started to um, you know, terraform the land, like drain the swamps, cultivate the land. And there was this kind of this this belief and this preaching amongst the Jews that the only way that they were really going to be safe was to have their own Jewish homeland. All right. So leading up to World War One, we're talking about the early 20th century. Um, this idea started to gain more traction, and um, the British passed um, what's called the the Balfour Declaration, which was basically an acknowledgement that they were going to support um, the creation of an Israeli state right, in the historic Israel, in that territory. And um, it didn't really fully happen until after World War II, okay? So World War II, Britain, who is, you know, rules that that region, that was kind of like a British um, area of control. We're talking about Palestine, Israel. Um, They pull out of a lot of their empire, all right, after World War II. They're just depleted, all right? And what the British do is they turn it over to the United Nations. The United Nations had been newly formed in the wake of World War II. And um, and obviously in World War II, what you had was the Holocaust. So you have like the greatest persecution of Jews ever. And what's happening is they're realizing how, how great the extent of this persecution was. So what happened is the UN... Um, established, they passed a resolution establishing a Jewish state in the land of Palestine, and they, what they did was they did a two-state solution. So they did some of the land was going to be for the Palestinian Arabs who were already living there, and then some of the land was going to be set apart for the Jews so that they could have a national homeland, a state of their own, Israel. Okay, And then um, the British pulled out, and the the Jews declared a, a national state of Israel America and Russia, the two superpowers, um, immediately recognize their statehood, and then that brand new nation is attacked. Okay, um, the Arab nations around Israel attack it, and um, the Israelis win. Okay, the Israelis win, and um, they establish their Jewish homeland. Now, for the past seventy years now, since Israel has been established, there has been a fight over that land, okay? And that's because the the vast majority of Arabs do not support the right of Israel to exist, okay? Now, what happened over the the past 70 years is there have been numerous attempts by several Arab nations around, we're talking Egypt, Syria, right? These nations, they've attacked Israel and they've pretty much been beaten every single time, okay? And so through conquest, Israel has actually grown from their initial land given to them by the UN, they've grown and they now control um, much of that area, including Gaza and the West Bank. Okay, so if you look at a a modern map of Israel, you'll see Israel that looks kind of like, you know, the biblical Israel, um, but there's two sections that often are different colors. (laughs) Okay, and that's because even though Israel controls these areas, what they've done is they have set it apart for, um, for Palestinian Arabs, um, for them to be sovereign, in a sense, in those locations, okay? And um, obviously, this is all very controversial, okay? The, the Hamas is the the elected government of the Gaza Strip. So Gaza is one of these two main 
um, lands where Palestinian Arabs live. And I should be clear, Israel itself has Palestinian Arabs living in it. You can be a citizen of the nation of Israel and be a Palestinian Arab. They have the representative in the government. They're like a like a minority group, okay, in the nation of Israel, a, a pretty large minority group, okay. Um, but the West Bank and Gaza, in particular, are set aside as um, places for the Palestinian Arabs, and Gaza is ruled by Hamas. Okay, and Hamas is. Um, openly devoted to destroying the nation of Israel, okay? They're, they're not hiding the ball. They've been really clear about this. Um, but Israel allows them to have their own sovereignty, even though Hamas is always kind of launching attacks at Israel, all right? What happened over the weekend is this is the biggest attack ever. Um, terrorist attack. We're not talking like military attack, right? So um, Israel has been invaded by other nations in type of military efforts. This is not that. This was a terrorist attack, okay? It's not like Hamas um, was expecting to be able to defeat the Israeli military and kind of take over the land. Like, they don't have the numbers or the equipment or the power for any of that. That wasn't, that wasn't the attempt. The attempt was to break into Israel, kill as many people as possible, all right, and they took hostages. They they raped many women. Um, they killed children. All this kind of stuff, and then they retreated back to Gaza. Okay, so this this is a terrorist attack. Okay, it's not it's not a it's not a true military attack. And um, what makes this difficult is that because Hamas is not trying to establish any kind of military objective or something like that. The question is, how does Israel now respond? Because um, Israel doesn't want to kill Palestinian Arabs in the Gaza territories that are not members of Hamas, right? The problem is that Hamas is actually the elected government of <laughs> that region. So it's very difficult. I mean, this is the, the trouble that, um, you know, American forces run into when, you know, when we're in Iraq, in Afghanistan, it's not so clear who are Taliban members and supporters and who are not, right? Like, who are terrorists and who are not? Like, this is this is the state of warfare in the Middle East in the 21st century. It's a lot of guerrilla warfare. And the, the big problem is you're not sure who's on your side and who's not on your side. And so you're trying to protect innocent civilians. You're trying not to hurt them. But at the same time, you're trying to find the people really responsible because they hide behind innocent civilians, Right, that's they're relying on the fact that the American government, that the Israeli government, don't want to kill innocent civilians, and so they're trying to blend into the population and hide themselves, and so they can continue launching terrorist attacks. This is, you know, this is a very difficult kind of warfare um, that's been going on. This is the situation that Israel now finds itself in. Okay, what do you do now? There's been this horrific attack. The worst terrorist attack since 9-11 against Jews, probably the worst type of terrorist attack like this since the Holocaust, right? This is, we're talking like, you know, the numbers are still coming out, they keep growing, but we're probably talking about over a thousand, you know, Jews killed or Israelis killed, many more taken hostage, many more wounded and injured, right? Um, and if, you know, as this conflict goes on, there's almost certainly going to be far more casualties, right? But the real question is, what's going to happen with 
the the geopolitics of the region. Okay, and this is what everyone's concerned with. In fact, the the initial question is why would Hamas launch an attack like this? Okay, and there's a lot of speculation going around. A lot of people are speculating that this was essentially designed to stop an Israeli-Saudi alliance. Okay, and to understand that, you need to understand that in the Middle East there is a power vacuum. There has been since the U.S. invaded and basically destroyed Iraq, okay? Iraq was the strongest power in the region, and the second strongest power was Iran. And so there was actually a huge war between Iran and Iraq, and, um, you know, the, the U.S. was pretty much fine with that. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, the Western powers are fine with the the Middle Eastern powers fighting amongst themselves to some degree. What they really don't want is they don't want the Middle East to unite, Right in some major way, okay? Because then you're dealing with another world power, essentially, that um, is very hostile to Western values, right? Um, and that's the that's the fear of of many in the West. That's what they don't want to happen at any cost. And that's one of the big reasons why um, the American government supports the Israeli government, right? The Israeli government is really a Western-style nation. It's a democratic um, nation. It's very liberal in its values, okay? And so the West supports Israel because they understand that Israel bears a lot of the the brunt of, you know, the hostility that otherwise would be, you know, coming out against other Western nations, all right? Um, but essentially what you have is when the United States went in and essentially took out Iraq, they took out the Iraqi military, it created this incredible power vacuum in the region. And Iran, in particular, has been trying to step into that power vacuum. All right. Now, what we should recognize is that Iran is somewhat unique amongst the Middle Eastern Muslim nations because Iran is Shiite as opposed to Sunni. Okay, so most Muslims in the world, something like 80 to 90% of Muslims in the world, are Sunni Muslims, and about 10 to 20 percent, and I think it's that number is much closer to 10 percent, are Shiite Muslims. Now, these are the two main factions of Islam, all right? I guess you could kind of think of it as like Catholics and Protestants, except there's a lot more hostility, <laughs> okay? There used to be a lot of hostility between Catholics and Protestants, right? We fought a lot of European wars along those lines, um, but at this present time, there's not that much hostility between Catholics and Protestants, relatively speaking. Um, but amongst Shiites and Sunnis, there is a lot of hostility, okay? And Iran is a Shiite nation, okay? So there is, Iran is not the same as all the other Muslim nations. In fact, many of the Muslim nations really don't like Iran, and Iran really doesn't like them, all right? And so because of that, Iran is now one of the strongest powers in the region. And Iran is openly devoted to terrorism, okay, to funding terrorism. They're openly, um, they're openly against the existence of the nation of Israel, right? They do not support Israel's right to exist. They want to completely destroy the nation of Israel, okay? So this is Iran, and Iran has been on the verge of acquiring nuclear technology for many years. And you have to understand, this that would be a complete disaster, especially to Israel. Like, can you imagine, right? You've got a, a neighbor who's not that far away from you. They are openly devoted to wiping you off the map, and they're really close to getting nuclear technology, nuclear weapons. And they openly st support terrorism, <laughs> right? That's like a nightmare. So Israel is fully devoted to thwarting Iran, 
right? The, you know, the Israeli Mossad, their, you know, their version of the CIA, I mean, they, they assassinate Iranian nuclear scientists. Like, that's what they do. That's like, if you're an Iranian nuclear scientist, okay, there's one of your pictures is up in Mossad's <laughs> building, okay? And they're constantly looking for you, all right? Because they're trying to kill you. That's that's how it works, all right? And um, for... You know, many years, the American government has tried to figure out what do we do with Iran, okay? Iran used to be a nation that America supported in the Middle East until 1979. They had an Islamic revolution. So before that, they had a Shah, a king, and that king had a lot of Western ties. It was actually considered a very westernized Middle Eastern nation. But then they had this Islamic revolution where Islamic radicals launched a revolution and they took over the government. So now the government is a radical Islamic government and it's openly devoted to destroying Israel. It hates the U.S., wants to destroy the U.S., um, all this kind of stuff. So the big question with the United States is, okay, what do we do with Iran? And our policy for a long time has been trying to stop their nuclear ambitions like we, like that was like a line in the sand for for many american governments like we were not going to allow iran to get a nuclear weapon now that seemed to kind of shift with obama all right um obama tried to sign a deal that basically um gave uh, allowed access to funds um to the iranian regime in exchange for basically delaying their nuclear development all right. And obviously most conservatives are totally against this. We're like, no, no deals with Iran. We need we have to stop them at any at any means necessary, whatever it takes, we gotta stop them. But the Democrats have been trying to take a much more conciliatory stand with them. They're trying to work out deals with them. And so Biden recently unfroze about six billion dollars worth of assets. And so a lot of conservatives are really upset because they see um, the Democrats as essentially being complicit in this attack, all right? Um, because what many people are speculating is that the Biden administration unfroze these $6 billion of assets, all right? And Israel has been trying to work out a peace deal with Saudi Arabia and by many reports is on the verge of working out this peace deal. And that is something that Iran really does not want. It does not want... Israel and Saudi Arabia signing a peace deal. It doesn't want Israel being at peace with all these Sunni Muslim nations. And so the way this theory goes is that they basically pushed Hamas, right, and gave them funding and weapons and everything for them to be able to launch this attack for the purpose of the retaliation of Israel. Okay, so again, Iran and Hamas are not under the illusion that they can defeat the Israeli military like this. All right, that's not what this is about. This is about provoking Israel such that Israel is forced to counterattack, kill lots of Palestinian Arabs and civilians, which will upset many Sunni Muslims in the Muslim world, including in Saudi Arabia, and will kill any kind of a peace deal. All right. I think there's a pretty I think there's a pretty credible argument there. I think the truth is at this point nobody really knows for sure. Okay? We're this is brand new. We have to see what happens, okay? But this is part of the geopolitical reality in the region and this is why it's such a delicate matter like how does Israel respond to this attack? All right? Um, because what it can't do is nothing. 
all right? Israel cannot afford to do nothing, all right? And unfortunately, that is what many people want them to do, all right? That has been the call from many Democrats, all right? Many Democrats are, you know, this is kind of the language that is being used, all right? It's like, you know, we condemn Hamas and their attacks against civilians, but now we call for a ceasefire to prevent further bloodshed. And a lot of people hear this and they're like, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> like stop the war, right? Stop innocent bloodshed, right? Um, but I, I want to say that is that is a type of spin that is really wrong and evil, and, and nobody should buy into that. Okay, nobody should buy into that, right? Because the idea that a nation that is attacked in this manner should just let it go, okay, then what you're doing is you're inviting further attacks. Okay, that's that every nation knows this. Okay, when terrorists took out the twin towers. In America, okay, there was widespread support for retaliation. Why? Because we understand we can't just let terrorists attack us without any kind of repercussion. All right, you you can't do that. Then you're inviting more attacks. Okay, it's the same thing. You know, if we want to use the example of Hitler, right? When when Hitler was coming to power, excuse me, when he came to power, what he started immediately doing was you know violating the Treaty of Versailles. He started to build up the German military, which was against their agreement, all right, he started to take over pieces of land, right? And um, initially, Britain and France and, you know, the people that were supposed to keep, be keeping him in check, they they wanted to be conciliatory towards Hitler. They want, you know, Neville Chamberlain, who was the prime minister of England, famously went to meet with Hitler and they signed an agreement. Okay, they signed the agreement, and famously, it came back, and, the, and all the newspapers reported, "We have reached a deal with Hitler. There's going to be peace in our time." Because they thought, if we just give him, you know, a little bit more, give give him a little bit more, then he's going to be okay, and then we're going to avoid any kind of war. And of course, Hitler completely ignored that agreement that he made, and he took more land. And then finally, the Allied powers realized, this is not somebody that you can negotiate with like this. Right? He's not going to just take a little bit of land and and be happy all right and that is exactly the situation with Israel okay and the Palestinians at this point okay it's exactly the situation because the official stance of the Israeli government is that they are more than happy to sign a two state deal meaning they are happy signing a deal where Israel has certain land and then the Palestinian Arabs are given certain land in exchange for recognition from all the surrounding nations, everybody recognizes Israel's right to exist, and everyone would be happy. I think they've offered that deal something like six or seven times, right? They are they want that deal. The problem is the Palestinians will not accept that deal, right? They will not accept that deal. And so because of that, Israel is forced to fight for its right to exist, um, and the other, you know, Hamas... They're not fighting for more land for the Palestinians. They're fighting for the complete eradication of Jews from the region. Okay, that is their goal. And they were they were elected by the Palestinian Arabs that live in Gaza. Okay? So this is, you know, this is one of these situations where we're dealing with people that cannot be negotiated with. All right, this is very similar to what the situation was with Hitler. There are people that are rational that you can work with because their aims are much lower. Like, you can be like, oh, okay, if we give you this land, then 
we're good, we can have peace, long-term peace, and be friends as nations and trade and all this kind of stuff. Okay, there are nations, most nations are like that, where we can make deals like that, okay? But this is not one of those situations, all right? Just like Hitler would not was not satisfied, all right, with a bit of land here or there. In the same way, groups like Hamas are not satisfied with any amount of land, okay? Like, you can, you can give 90% of the land in that region to the Palestinian Arabs, to Hamas, and Israel would have 10% of the land. Hamas would reject that deal, okay? They are not okay with any, any land given to Israel, all right? So that's the state that we're in. And when you have these Democrat congresspeople and senators saying we need a ceasefire, understand what that is, okay? There, there are openly now... Um, many Democrats who are calling for, you know, defunding of Israel and full-on blaming Israel for these attacks, all right? I think it was, you know, at Harvard, they had a bunch of different Harvard student groups sign this document, you know, that basically said that we blame Israel for these attacks. These attacks happen because Israel is the oppressor for the past 70 years, et cetera, et cetera, Okay. People who feel this way are not people that can really be negotiated with because they're they're not okay with Israel having any land for the most part. I want to make it clear here that the position of most Democrats is they that they support some type of two-state solution. Okay, that's the position of most Democrats and most moderate Democrats. You know, they do not support Hamas. All right, but what you have within the Democratic Party is a sizable minority now that basically supports Hamas, right? There were celebrations in New York City, <laughs> right? Which is unbelievable, right? In, in the wake of all of this footage coming out of Israel where we have women and children killed and raped and there's celebrations, it's unbelievable. Um, but there is this minority in the Democratic Party that is very vocal and very strong, and they're overrepresented on university campuses, right? There's this incredible video um, that, man, I forgot his name. This guy went out to Berkeley, my alma mater, right? They went to Berkeley with um, the flag of ISIS, and they waved it around, and nobody stood up to him, right? Nobody, he, he had one guy encourage him. And then he took out the American flag and the Israeli flag. And when he took out the Israeli flag, man, he had people cussing at him. He had people cursing him, all this kind of stuff. Because especially on the university campuses, we have, we have this sentiment that's really strong that Israel is an oppressor. They are the evil empire and they deserve to be completely wiped out. Okay, And again, to be clear, that is not the position of most Democrats, but it is of this this vocal and growing minority in the Democrat Party. I'm, I'm trying to lay all this out because I think a lot of people are not familiar with this this type of stuff. They're not familiar with this conflict, so they don't understand a lot of the rhetoric. Okay, Understanding political talk is really being able to see through the spin and recognize what people are actually saying. Okay, Now what I want to do real quick, I've, I've been talking mostly about the geopolitics, is I want to pivot into the the from a from a christian perspective from a biblical perspective how should we understand this conflict okay because as christians our understanding um is a little bit different than you know somebody who's not a christian and i would argue it's it's much better okay as a christian we should understand these things because the big debate in this whole conflict is who has the right to the land okay at at its heart 
the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is who has the right to this land, okay? And you're going to hear you know, different arguments. Some arguments are going to be like, well, Israel has a right because this was their national homeland for thousands of years, and we have all these documents, including the biblical evidence, right, that there was this nation of Israel, and it existed here, and then these are their descendants. So they have a historic claim on the land. All right, and then you're going to hear other arguments, right? That you know you lose your claim after a certain amount of time being gone from the land, and the Palestinian Arabs have the stronger claim because they were here in the time of the Ottomans, right? And and for hundreds of years, their families held onto this land. It was an unbroken chain. Or you can hear arguments like that, and this is a it's a huge debate because there is no clear answer from a non-biblical perspective. How do you determine who has the right to any land? Okay. Some, like many people today are essentially going to argue that if anyone invades anybody else, they're automatically in the wrong, right? As though the borders today are for some reason the perfect borders, <laughs> okay? And any nation that invades or tries to take over any other land, they're automatically wrong, okay? Everybody should just accept the land that they have today, okay? Now, I understand why people make that argument. Because you want peace, right? And you're like, hey, let's just try and be happy with what we have. But, you know, that argument can be really ignorant of many historical claims of the wrongs that were done such that people now are living in this land. Okay? And you're going to hear a lot of this, from example, from, from Native Americans. Okay? Or those that, that support or sympathize with them. Like, why do, why does the U.S. government have the right over this land? This land belonged to the Native Americans and was taken right, by force, oftentimes underhanded, right, through the use of, like, disease as a weapon, <laughs> okay, treaties were broken by the U.S. government, okay, there's there's many Native Americans that are very bitter and upset about the situation, right, and now, the, you know, they have to live on these small reservations in, in plots of land that are not, you know, that great, okay, so the question is, why, why, why is that just, all right, why is it just, for Native Americans to keep their current land parcel and for the U.S. government to have all this land, okay? And there's and there's so many claims like that, right? There's so many claims like that. And on what basis do we understand that any people has the right to a piece of land, okay? And um, historically, the understanding has simply been the, the right of might, okay? We should understand this, okay? Historically, we're talking about throughout human history, if you were militarily stronger than your neighbor then you had the right to conquer them and take what you could. And that's how the world has worked, okay, for thousands of years. The might of right, okay? Now, what happened after World War II is the powers, especially the United States, came up with this, this idea of national self-determination, okay? And basically what it was is it was a retreat from colonialism. The idea was that America was saying, hey, you know, we're now the strongest power on the world, you know, with, with the USSR at this point. And what we say is that it's not right that just because you're a stronger power that you should dominate and control and annex countries near you that are, that are weaker. We believe in national self-determination, okay? And really that was um, a U.S. push. The, the, that happened because... The U.S. was really strong and pushed for that. And and there was a political agenda to that, too, because we didn't want the Soviets... <laughs> we didn't want the Soviets taking over a bunch of other nations, all right? Because they, they had the power, 
to start taking over a bunch of uh, different nations, and they had the the political ability, right? The the reality is in in the U.S. we don't have the political ability to go start conquering other nations. Okay, if we start, if the, if the U.S. government, if Joe Biden's like, dude, I want to take over Mexico, right? And he sends the army down to Mexico to try and conquer it. You know what would happen? America, the American citizenry would would revolt against this. Like we'd be so upset, we'd vote him out of office. Okay. And that's because as, as Americans, you know, we have had a, his, a historic value for not meddling in other people's business. Like, just let us do our own thing. You do your thing, right? And that, that isolationist mentality has been a strong part of American culture and historic values, okay, since our inception. Okay, now obviously, since the Cold War, right, since the, the post, in the post-World War II era, what happened is we recognized that if we didn't get involved, what was going to happen is that the Soviets were going to basically take over the world through communism, all right? Because they were sending out spies everywhere to start communist revolutions, and we realized we had to stop that, okay? So in the post-World War II era, our official foreign policy was called containment. We were going to contain communism, and that's why we fought wars in Vietnam, in Korea, okay, and that's that's why the CIA was really actively involved in trying to stop the spread of communism. We became actively involved because we recognized, okay, we gotta, we gotta get involved in all this kind of stuff, okay? Now, the reason why I'm giving this little political history lesson is because I want us to understand this debate. Who has the right to land? Okay, there's no clear answer to this question. Okay, that's because as a, as a Christian from a biblical perspective, this is what we should understand. It's God who gives people groups land. It's God who gives land to groups. And this is all throughout the Bible. Okay, it testifies to this principle. All right, and this is the idea of God's sovereignty. All right, that God is sovereign in the sense that he rules over the nations. He rules over the nations and he humbles nations and he exalts nations and that's his doing he is the one that is enabling that to happen and we see that through so many different passages throughout the bible i i I try to make this point because i think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the sovereignty of god in fact when you hear that term today in christian circles what they're usually talking about when they say sovereignty is what's called in theological terms meticulous determination all right it's the idea that god controls every little thing that happens, that every little thing that happens is according to God's will and somehow serves to glorify him, okay? Now, I, I, I do not think, that, I don't think that's a, 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 a true doctrine, but that's for sure not what the concept of sovereignty is about, okay? Because, you know, sovereignty is if, like the U.S. government is sovereign in the U.S. territory. That doesn't mean that the U.S. government controls every little thing that happens, Right? That's not what it means. What it means is that there's no power that's higher. So if you if if you say I'm the boss here and I can drive whatever speed I want, well then the government and this is like the lo- the the local and the state government initially, well they have a problem with that and they'll be like, nope, you're going to go to jail. Okay, and then they they enforce that with might. Right? They enforce that with might. So the U.S. government is sovereign in the sense that it sets the law and you cannot go against the law of the U.S. government. You don't have the power because they will back it up with military muscle, okay? And that's the same the same sense in which the Bible talks about the sovereignty of God, 
okay? It really does not mean that he controls every little thing that happens, okay? Because at that point, you're in a position where you have to say that God is the author of sin, okay? Even though I know that Calvinists and, and such would not use that terminology because the Bible explicitly says that he's not the author of sin. But my point is the way they, they understand sovereignty and the way they understand God to work, you cannot help but come to that logical conclusion, in my opinion. All right. If God is causing all things for his glory and he's causing like all this sin is happening according to his will, okay, then what you're essentially saying is that he uses all this stuff for his glory and it's it's the this is the the best way that it could have happened or something like that, okay? Because he's completely in control of everything. All right. That is a tangent. <laughs> okay. I, I only bring this up because I think the concept of sovereignty is actually very important and very misunderstood within Christian Christianity, okay? The true principle of biblical sovereignty is that God rules over the nations. He exalts righteous nations, all right? And he humbles sinful nations. And I believe that the understanding of this is that what God wants to do is he wants the righteous to be exalted because when the righteous are exalted, then what happens is their righteousness is influencing everything and it causes the world and the places that they influence and control to be much more prosperous, right, and blessed. And that's his desire, okay? So if a nation is righteous, he blesses that nation with finances, right, with military power, that because he wants that nation to be able to influence everything with righteousness, okay? And, and this makes perfect sense, right? Like, none of us want Hitler to be in charge, okay? None of us want Hitler to be in charge. Um, so, thank God that Hitler did not win World War II, right? Like, can you imagine how terrible that would be, all right? What we generally see is that God will use evil rulers, okay, I think in a couple of different circumstances. Number one, if he can't find anyone better, okay? I think he'll use the best of what's available, all right? But he also uses evil rulers as a judgment to accomplish his will of destruction and judgment against other nations, and then he humbles them, okay? And we see that again and again throughout history where God will use nations that are, are pretty evil, and they'll cause all this destruction to humble other nations, and then they themselves will collapse, okay? We've seen that pattern several times. We're talking about, like, the Mongolian Empire, talking about Alexander and the Greeks. If you're talking about, um, you know, Hitler, <laughs> okay? Um, Babylonians, all right? There's a lot of these types of situations where certain nations are exalted, and God talks about that, specifically, you know, with the Babylonians, you know, we get that picture in the scriptures that God is using them, right, to judge the Israelites. He's using them to judge the Egyptians. He's using them to judge these other people groups, okay? And I, I think that the idea there is that he would prefer that there would be a righteous nation that he could exalt for a long period of time that would, would bring peace upon the earth, right, that would bring prosperity upon the earth. That's what I think he wants to do. But the problem is that power corrupts so easily, Okay, people can't handle power, and so when people are put into positions of power, they start becoming tyrannical and oppressive, and that's because of our sinful nature, and so that's why we have this system where you know God's constantly raising up nations and humbling them, raising up nations and humbling them. It's because of our own weakness, our own inability to steward riches and power. It's it's very hard, okay? But this is the concept of the sovereignty of God, 
And look, I think if we're going to understand the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, you have to understand this, this has to be part of your worldview. Okay, if you're going to understand the Native Americans, is it fair for the Native Americans to have, you know, to have lost their land? You have to understand it in the eyes of the sovereignty of God. Okay, I know Mel Gibson. I I, I think it was Mel Gibson. I think he produced a movie, um, some years ago, Apocalypto. Okay, I don't recommend the movie. I did not enjoy the movie. It's brutal. It is absolutely brutal. Okay, I don't know what it is with Mel Gibson and and super brutal movies. I really liked Braveheart phenomenal movie but it was also very brutal okay like um but in apocalypto what it shows is it shows i i forget if it's the mayans or the incans it shows their civilization prior to the coming of the europeans and how brutal and barbaric they were and the mass murder and all this kind of stuff and then i think the final scene in that movie i remember is like the european um you know the spanish ships coming in you know to the harbor there and it's kind of a foreboding it really suggests this idea of judgment right like that the europeans are judging are going to be judging all of this evil that the movie has tried to portray okay um i i can actually respect um that take okay like i can understand why it's very like a lot of people would be really upset at mel gibson for making a movie like that um because it goes against this idea of humanism that humans are in control and that we we we're the ones who are really working this stuff out and it, i think it 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 gets back to this more biblical understanding that no it's god who is doing this it's God that drives out nations, all right? And we've talked about this on this podcast in, in passages like Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 is the infamous passage that condemns homosexuality in the Old Testament. It condemns a number of sexual sins, okay? Um, but the, the real importance of that chapter is the last section, because the last section of that chapter, it's telling the Israelites, do not commit any of these sexual sins, all right? Don't commit any of these sexual sins. Don't even let the Gentiles that are living with you commit these sins, right? Because it's because of these sins that the land vomited out those that came before you. And what what this passage is revealing is that these defilements, these defiling sins, they cause nations to be cast out of their own land, all right? Now, I can give you some speculation on that. I've speculated on this before. Like, why is that? Because what happens is when these sexual sins become pervasive in a culture. What happens is they they actually defile the people, right? Because what they do is they kill that chain of blessing where parents are devoted to one another, devoted to their children, and their children become devoted to their children. That that chain of blessing it kills it because what sex does is it produces lots of unwanted babies, okay? When when sexual sin is rampant, then what you get is a lot of unwanted babies. And then what you get is a lot of broken people, okay? And broken people that are rebellious and they don't care for others, they don't care for children, right? And it becomes a rebellious people. Sexual sin is really at the heart of a lot of that. And we see that happening here in America, okay? But the Lord warns that if you commit these sexual sins, then he'll have to drive you out of the land, okay? And that wasn't an empty threat. That's exactly what happened to to Israel okay the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire and they were lost in history okay the the Jews the the southern kingdom of Judah they were conquered by the Babylonians after much warning right God sent prophets to warn them to repent of their sin they did not and so God exiled them from the land 
All right, this is the first Babylonian exile. And they go into the exile for 70 years in Babylon, and then God restores them to the land. Okay? But he warns them that if they if they worship idols and commit these heinous sins again, if they persist in them, then he will cast them out of the land again. And and some of the last prophecies in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, right, are about how God is going to test the nation. He's going to send right the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the hearts of the children, lest he come and strike the land with a curse. Right? He's going to come as the refiner's fire to refine the priests. Right, And he talks about how he's going to test them. And that's the coming of Jesus was a test for the nation of Israel. All right, This is, I think, what many Christians really don't understand. It was a real test for the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel, the leadership, rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They rejected the one that, the, the one that was coming to test them. He was going to test the shepherds of Israel. That's from... Um, ah! Ezekiel, you know, just Google it, okay? <laughs> test the shepherds of Israel, okay? He's going to test the shepherds. And then Malachi, he's going to test the priesthood, right? Test the sons of Levi, all right? And Jesus came to do those things. And you see that testing all throughout Jesus' ministry. That's why he spoke in parables, right? And he's very explicit about that. I speak in parables so that hearing they will not understand lest they turn, lest they repent and turn and they, they be healed, okay? God was testing their testing the nation. He wasn't. He didn't want to make it so easy for them, okay? And uh, see, th- this is the problem. We read these stories about Israel and then we think, oh, God would never do that to us. That's just how he worked back then. But we're now we're in a new dispensation, right? Or a, a new covenant of grace, right? That They were in the, under the covenant of law and that's how God treated them. But he doesn't work like that anymore. And I just want to lovingly say, God is the same yesterday and today and forever, okay? A lot of that is real misunderstanding, okay? It's real misunderstanding of these things, okay? God continues to test nations, all right? And he continues to judge nations, all right? And what we're going to see in when we're, when we're examining all of this in light of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is what we should understand is that it is God that brought Israel back to the land, okay? It is God. He promised that he would bring them back to the land, and he did it, okay? So when we're talking about who deserves the land, who has the rightful claim to the land, we should understand the the Israelis have the rightful claim to the land, in my opinion, okay? In my opinion, they absolutely do. Okay, Um, I'm going to give scripture to to back that up because this is now this is now a controversial point in many churches. Okay, Um, Genesis 28, verse 13 says this: There above it stood the Lord. He said, "I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you." Okay, the the person that that the Lord is speaking to here in Genesis twenty eight is to Jacob. Okay, and if you know your biblical history, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. All right, this promise was first given to Abraham. All right, the promise, I will give you this land and to your descendants. I will give this land to you and your descendants forever. That's the promise he gave to Abraham. All right, now the reason why I picked this passage, um, he actually gave this promise again to his son Isaac, and he gave it again to Jacob here. 
All right. So he reaffirmed the promise several times. But the, the issue is that today the land is being fought over primarily over the descendants of Abraham. Right. Um, Abraham had two sons. His firstborn son was Ishmael. Okay. And Ishmael was not the, the child of promise. He was the child that Abraham made on his own with his servant Hagar, right? Because God had promised him a child, right? That he would have a child, but it wasn't happening. And he got really old. And he's like, it's over. This is not going to happen. And his wife said, you know what you should do? You should just have a child with my servant Hagar, right? So that your, your line will continue. And Abraham did it. And he had a child named Ishmael. And um, and then what happened is the Lord came again and told him, no, you're going to have a child through your wife, Sarah. And it's going to be miraculous. And that eventually did happen, and that was Isaac. Okay, Now, when Isaac was born, what happened was that Sarah and Hagar got into a fight, and Sarah demanded that Hagar and Ishmael be cast out. And at first, Abraham really didn't want to do this because he understood that they would probably die. It was cruel. But the Lord spoke to him and told him to go ahead and do it, that he would watch over them. And so trusting in the Lord, he cast out Hagar and Ishmael, all right? And they became the forefathers of the Arab peoples, okay? So the Arabs are considered the descendants of Ishmael, all right? And Islam as a religion, which is, you know, primarily popular amongst the Arabs, Right? There is a belief that God did speak to Abraham, did give him those promises, but that the Jewish Bible changed it to make Isaac the chosen son, when in fact the true chosen son was Ishmael. So in Islam, Ishmael is the true chosen son, and that's why they claim all that land, the sons of Ishmael. So what you have is you have the sons of Ishmael, the Arabs, fighting with the sons of Isaac, right, the Jews, and they're fighting over this land. And they've been fighting over it now for thousands of years, and this this current conflict is a continuation of this fight, right? It's still going on, all right? Um, but obviously, as a Christian, we believe that the Bible, all right, the Old Testament, which is called the Tanakh in, you know, the Hebrew Bible, we believe that that is accurate that Isaac was the true chosen child, okay? He was the son of the promise. And then that promise went to Jacob and then went to his 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel, all right? That their descendants have been given the land forever, okay? That that promise still stands, okay? Now, there are going to be many people today that are going to say, many Christians today, that are going to say that that is... That promise was a bilateral covenant. That's the terminology used. It means it's a, it's an agreement, a contract between two sides. But Israel broke the contract, and so because Israel broke the contract, they no longer have any rights to land. Okay, I believe that take is 100% wrong. Okay, but that is a very popular take. I mean, we're talking like very popular Bible teachers. I believe that John Piper holds to that position. Okay, I believe that there's there's many famous, important Bible teachers that hold to that position. I believe that position is totally wrong, okay? Um, in particular, there's a number of reasons. I'll, I'm going to give a couple of biblical ones, okay? Here's, this is Romans 11, okay? This is Paul in the New Testament speaking about the nation of Israel. And what he's telling the, the Roman Christians 
is about the nation of Israel. He says this, as far as the gospel is concerned, they, speaking of the Israelites, are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Okay? So what Paul is making explicit in Romans 11 is that the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are valid, that they are not revoked because those promises are irrevocable and that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they found favor in his sight that he would show favor to their descendants to a thousand generations. That's his promise, okay? And it's repeated all throughout the Old Testament, notably when God is speaking through Moses, right? The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding in love and slow to anger, right? He will not leave the guilty unpunished, but will punish them to the third and fourth generation, but showing kindness and favor to a thousand generations of those who love him, right? That's the promise. He will not remove his favor from Israel. Why? Because Abraham found so much favor with God. Because Isaac, why why are the Arabs blessed by God? Because of the blessing of Abraham still, okay? That blessing remains on the Arab people because of Abraham's faithfulness. That's why they're so numerous today, okay? They're still blessed by God in certain ways, but the land specifically was given to the child of promise, okay? It was given to the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of um. Jacob, okay? And we should understand that as as Bible-believing Christians, right? And God always promised that he would bring them back to the land. He does warn them that he will cast them out of the land, but then he tells them he will bring them back again, okay? And that happened in 1948. So this is just one example of that promise from Ezekiel 37. You know, Ezekiel has this vision. He sees this valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. And as a Christian, I've heard messages on this, right? And, And... the messages I've heard are always like, you know, there's a valley of dry bones, and this is about dead Christians, right? Spiritually dead people, okay? Dead, this is spiritually dead Americans that have no faith and don't believe in God. And then he says, son of man, can these bones live? And God says, and Ezekiel says, only you know, Lord. And he says, yes, they can live, and, and there's revival. <laughs> okay, that's how I've heard this message preached at least a couple times. I've heard it in that kind of a way. But that is really not what that passage is about, okay? Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones is about Israel, okay? Israel is the people of Israel. That's exactly what he says in verse 11. It says, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel, It's so explicit, right? They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. And then you'll know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Okay. All right, so we should understand The Israelites are on the land because God has given it back to them. And he opens doors that no man can shut. And he shuts doors that no man can open. So if we are wise, we will come into agreement with the judgments of God. 
All right? Because if you try to oppose the judgments of God, you will only get frustrated and find yourself fighting God. And unfortunately, that is the state that many people are now in where they find themselves fighting God. All right? The 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 last thing that, you know, well I want to talk about how we can pray for this conflict out of this, but the the last subject that I'm going to talk about is this the the idea that there, there's the reason why there's so much Palestinian support in the West is because of this link to the concept of Marxist oppression. All right. Now, obviously, I talk a lot about Marxism because I believe Marxism has been the most demonic, destructive ideology for the past 150 years. Okay, it has caused unprecedented suffering. You know, if we're talking about just talking about the total number of those that have been killed and starved and tortured. And all, all this stuff has happened because of the ideology of Marxism. All right? That's why I speak out so vehemently against it. All right? But this is why many Westerners, including many Christians, are highly influenced by Marxist ideas. And I, I, I would be amiss to, to not point out that many Jews <laughs> are also influenced by Marxist ideas. Okay? When I talked about the, the founding of the State of Israel, this was primarily done by Jewish socialists. Okay? Jews have been pushing Marxism... They've been the main proponents of Marxism for a long time now, all right? If you're looking at the ones who are preaching Marxism in our universities, there's many of them are Jewish thought leaders, okay? So uh, I, I'm not trying to say that this is, you know, uh, many blessed and good people can believe, but you, they're seduced by the ideas of Marxism, okay? In my opinion, believing Marx's ideas results in hardship and suffering for your people group. Okay, but it's because Marxism is so has been so influential for the past hundred years that um, it it it's directly linked to this idea. Because when many people today they see the world through a lens of oppressed and oppressor, okay, and that that way of seeing the world, okay, immediately causes many people to sympathize with the Palestinians, right. For example, I mentioned that many of the Harvard student groups, you know, released a public statement recently saying that they blame the state of Israel for those attacks. Well, one, one of those groups was a, was an African-American freedom organization, okay? Like, what, what, what do the African-Americans have to do supporting <laughs> the, the Palestinians, you know, supporting Hamas, right? Um, and, and the reason is because if you feel like you're oppressed, then you feel like the people who are being oppressed over there are also your brothers, right? You're standing with them against the oppressors. And this idea of putting, you know, the Israelis in this category of oppressor and the Palestinians in the category of oppressed, like, that is causing so many people to be deceived, right? It's causing so many people to be deceived. You're going to... I've, I've seen a number of posts recently, you know, saying where people are basically saying this attack that Hamas did, this is what decolonization looks like. Like I remember I saw the post said, what did you expect it to look like? <laughs> and I, 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 I hear what they're saying. What they're saying is that, look, when you have, you know, when you have oppression, what do you expect the oppressed not to fight back? That's what they're saying. They're, what they're, what they're likening this to is like star Wars, right? This is the rebellion against the evil empire. Does it look like some, you know, some stormtroopers getting killed? Of course, right? <laughs> All right. Of course, we got to kill some stormtroopers. But see what they're doing? They are, uh, 
uh, equating Hamas kidnapping women, raping them, killing children. They're equating that with the resistance from Star Wars, right? They're equating it with with fighting for freedom. And they're saying this is what decolonization looks like because Israel is so evil and so oppressive that they have to fight in whatever way that they can. And this idea, it, it's, it spans to lots of different things. It's the reason why you have so much looting going on in Californian cities, right? You have these groups of people that are invading stores like Walmart and Target, and they're just taking a bunch of stuff. And you have people defending it, saying... Well, they've been oppressed by these companies, by Western corporate imperialism. <laughs> All right, they've been oppressed by them, and they need to eat, and they need, you know, they need to steal to feed their families. And it's it's this idea that you can't see past this incredibly low resolution perspective of the world where you only see in terms of oppressed and oppressor, and anything the oppressor does is evil, and anything the oppressed does is right. It's it's such a deception. Okay? No, the truth is that even good people do bad things. And bad people sometimes do good things. And you can't say that these people are all good and these people are all bad and support everything they do. Like, that's how you become an evil person. Okay? That's how you become an evil person, where you do incredibly evil things because you, you've learned to justify all this evil. This is exactly what happened in, with the Nazi regime, where it's the Jews are blamed for everything. They're the evil ones. Everything they do, and it justifies all the evil that's done against them, right? Because if you can convince yourself that these people are oppressors, then any way that you resist or oppose them all of a sudden becomes good, okay? And that is simply deception, okay? That is simply being so incredibly deceived, all right? And um, the, the truth is that America has been remarkably resistant to anti-Semitism throughout its history. Okay. Do we have anti-Semitism? Of course we do. <laughs> In my opinion, every nation has to struggle with anti-Semitism to some degree. Okay, and you know, I think a lot of people are like, "Why is that?" You know, they don't understand. But as Christians, we should understand there is a spiritual component to this. Okay, there is a demonic goal to wipe out the Jewish people. I mean, history is so full of this evidence. All right, and as Christians, we should have the humility to admit that a lot of that has been done through people who claim to be Christian, right? Now, I would put up some defenses here because, you know, if you study, you know, any Christian history in a secular university today, it's all going to be the negative stuff, right? It's all going to be the Inquisition, the Crusades, how these Christians did all these evil things throughout history. And you know what I always want to say is that as a Christian, as somebody who champions Christianity today— I understand my battle outside of the church is primarily against lawlessness, all right? I'm constantly preaching against the evil of sin to people outside the church, okay? But inside the church, I'm also fighting a battle, all right? Inside the church, I'm fighting the battle against legalism, all right? And I'm constantly opposed to people, Christians in the church, those who claim to be Christian, who become super legalistic in their interpretations, and they hold to the letter of the law while completely violating the spirit of the law, right? And I I feel like I'm fighting both of these battles all the time as a Christian, okay? I'm fighting against legalists within the church, and I'm fighting against law, lawlessness outside of the church. And 
this is part of the difficulty is that whenever the the legalistic people who claim that they're Christian and they do all these sorts of evil things that violate the heart and the spirit of Christianity, what happens is real Christians get blamed for it. Okay? And I'm pretty sure that's how it's gone all throughout history. Right? But thank God, history also has many accounts of while there was there were Christians committing atrocious acts of anti-Semitism, they're they're persecuting Jews, right? There were also other Christians that were devoted to helping them. Okay? And history has many stories right, of Christians who laid down their lives to protect Jews and to help them and to bless them and to feed them. Okay? I thank God that throughout history, if, if, if you really do study, you're going to see both. And, and that's the problem. You get these, this, this low-resolution study of, of history where people are, oh, yeah, the Christians, they committed all these atrocities. And it's like, come on. Come on. Okay? Half the battle that I'm doing as a Christian today is I'm trying to make a distinction between those who truly are Christian and those who claim to be Christian and do things in the name of God that are evil. All right? And it, that's, that's one of the tough things here. America has had, historically, a high and genuine devotion to Christ. Okay? The source of America's greatness is its true devotion to Christ. All right? that's, that's my firm conviction and belief. America is blessed because we had this true devotion to Christ, this desire to honestly follow him, Right, they're stoked by true revivals that brought real repentance, real zealousness and spirituality. Right, that really ended the slave trade. Okay, that really fought for the sake of the Jewish people. In fact, if you look at the history of Israel, owes a, a debt of, of gratitude to Americans that supported and to. I, I want to give a hand to a lot of people in Europe too, the British in particular, right? That supported the creation of the state of Israel, that donated heavily to the early settlers that settled the land in Israel, okay? This is why, by the way, many leftists in America hate Christians because they know that it's Christians that are supporting the state of Israel so much, right? And that support Jews today so much. And I want to say because what you need to understand is that anti-Semitism reveals, it manifests how sick and corrupt a nation becomes, Okay, and I think as our nation has been straying from a genuine devotion to Christ, what we're going to see is we're going to see more and more anti-Semitism. Okay, and I want to say that we as Christians, I think it's wise to study the history of Christianity to recognize we're talking even some major leaders of the faith like Martin Luther. Right, I consider Martin Luther an incredible hero of the faith. All right, Um, but he was clearly anti-Semitic, all right? Clearly anti-Semitic during some portions of his life. And I've heard reports that he repented of some of that. Um, I don't know. I hope, right? But clearly, a number of things that he did and said were revealed a racial hatred, right? Or hatred towards Jews, okay? And there's been a number of that kind of stuff, okay? There's other heroes. George Whitfield, I consider a great hero of the faith, all right? We probably wouldn't have had a civil war if George Whitfield hadn't supported slavery so passionately. Okay, I think that was a major flaw, a major weakness that he had. All right, but the point is that these weaknesses that people have don't necessarily make them evil people, even though they're real weaknesses. Okay, and this is the same thing that we have to do today. I I always try and counsel believers because, look, you're going to run into all sorts of weaknesses 
in other Christians and in Christian leaders. All right, in the past 10, 20 years, we've seen so much exposing of Christian leaders. Right, major weaknesses that they have. But I think it's also a temptation for us to throw leaders away and to say like, because they have this weakness, it shows that they were never, you know, a good leader in the first place. Right. No, what it shows is that we as as Christian followers are often immature in our ability to follow. What I mean is that there's a tendency for us to idolize very gifted leaders. And that's that's absolutely wrong. We should not idolize people because they're gifted. All right, let me just tell you, it's very different. Gifting and character have some correlation, but oftentimes they're, they can be very different things. You get people that are very gifted and have major character flaws. All right, um, the, the situation with Todd Bentley, I think, really exposed and revealed a lot of that, right? Where it seems like there's very major character flaws in somebody who's extremely gifted. That doesn't mean Todd Bentley was a complete fake, in my opinion. Okay, now I don't, I don't know. Okay, I, I'm not, I don't personally know Todd Bentley. Okay. But from afar, just looking at everything that happened, what I could say is what it seems to me is that he was very gifted and he was very, uh, and he had major character flaws. And the thing was, both those things can exist at the same time. If I had to guess, I think Todd Bentley had a, a sincere faith in Christ. Okay, I don't know if he still does. I don't know where he's at today. But what I do know is that you can have people that have a sincere faith in Christ, and over time, you know, especially especially when they're given lots of fame, lots of influence, lots of money, okay, it's very hard to steward those things, even if you have phenomenal character, okay? Like when I read the story of Saul in Scripture, that's exactly what I see. I see someone that, that I, I believe that Saul was probably the best choice for king outside of David, right? And David, but it was because David was not ready to be king, and the people were demanding one that God gave the nation, I think, the the very best that was available. I think that was Saul. I think early on in Saul's reign, he seems very devout, right? Very humble. <laughs> like, like I, I see somebody who's genuinely trying to do his best, but over time what happens is because he can't handle that level of power, that level of influence and riches, and then he starts to become fearful and jealous, right? And all this kind of stuff. And by the end of his life, it, you know, is, is he righteous i don't know i don't know i hope i hope that saul's in heaven you know i don't know a lot of people would probably say he's not um but to me saul is a is a warning story you know to many of us because you have these leaders and i think at their heart i think they're good leaders but it's very hard to steward power fame and authority and wealth and i just say that to anybody who has never stewarded any of those things okay like we need to have humility towards those that do Okay, everybody thinks that the world would be so much better if they were in charge of the world. <laughs> okay, I tend to think like uh, I tend to think if God said, "Dennis, I'm making you king of the world," I think I would mess the world up. <laughs> I think if that were to happen, a hundred years, you know, they'd be like, "Dennis was one of the worst <laughs> tyrants ever," you know. And obviously, it's not because I would plan to do that. It's just because of the warfare and the pressure and the demonic influence and all the stuff that you know you have to face in in that type of position. Uh, that's why there's no king of the world. That's why Jesus is literally the only person that can handle it. <laughs> that's what I think. I think Jesus is the only one that can handle it. And I have incredible respect for leaders that have stewarded um, great positions. And seem to do it well. Like, I have incredible, like George Washington. 
I, you know, I think the King of England said that if George Washington gives up power, then he truly will be the most, you know, the greatest man alive. And that's what he did. He voluntarily gave up power when that precedent did not exist in America. He could have been, he probably could have won a bunch more elections. Maybe he would have been, he could have been president for life if he had the desire to, right? But he didn't want that. He wanted to establish a nation where you had real you know, leadership rotation, right? He really believed that it was better for the nation if he didn't rule for like a really long period. And I, I'm that's amazing to me. Like I have so much respect, you know, for leaders that, that steward these positions of influence very, you know, in, a, in an amazing way. Okay. All right. Sorry for going a little bit of a tangent there. Um, now I also want to address what can happen from this conflict. And the truth is this, nobody knows. It is a powder keg keg that can set off um, any number of <laughs> terrible things, okay? Because uh, tensions are so high over this issue that whenever there's a conflict, um, it can spiral out of control. And that's why it's very important that we pray into this situation because we don't know. Nobody knows where this thing could go, okay? At best, Israel has a limited response you know, um, and they managed to kill a bunch of the Hamas leadership and things go back to the way they were. I kind of highly doubt that's what's going to happen. Um, I think there's a very good chance that they take a much firmer control over Gaza um, because they're, they're basically at war with Hamas now. Okay. But the question is, how do you fight Hamas? Because they're hiding behind civilians and they purposefully do that. And what is almost certainly going to happen is they're going to try very hard to root out Hamas um, and they're going to kill a number of people that um, are going to be considered innocent. And the, the, the problem is we're never going to know some percentage of the population is killed. We're not going to know whether they were innocent or whether they were guilty, whether they were aiding Hamas or not, right? Um, but almost certainly there is going to be growing tension against Israel in the Muslim world and in the Western world, okay? That vocal minority of people that agree with Hamas that there should be no Israeli state, right? They're going to get louder and louder. They're going to be more forceful in their calls that Israel is an oppressor, all this kind of thing. But what I want to just make really clear is this. The way that Hamas is fighting, they want these casualties. They want Palestinian casualties because they know that Palestinian casualties increase support for their side on the world stage. And that's what they're relying on. That's what they're hoping for. Okay? And that's why Israel is in something of an impossible situation where they cannot allow Gaza to go unregulated and for Hamas to plan and to continue to launch terror attacks from there. They can't allow that, especially after this attack. Um, but the only way to try to root it out will cause civilian casualties because Hamas is purposefully trying to hide behind the Palestinian population and they're hoping that Israel will kill the Palestinian population. Do you understand? Like, this is how evil this is, all right? But that's why this situation really has the potential to spiral out of control. And we don't know what that could cause. It could cause um, a, a massive new wave of terrorism against the West. It could cause um, regional instability. All right, we don't know where this is going to go. So all I can say is that we really just have to pray into this situation that the Lord would guide them, that he would give wisdom to the Israeli leadership, 
that Hamas would be exposed and rooted out, that it wouldn't grow into a larger threat. Like there's a real danger that Hezbollah, which is another major terrorist organization, could jump in to the fray. Like we don't know. We don't know if there's a nuclear weapon, you know, waiting for all the Iron Dome missiles to be exhausted. You know, we don't know what could happen here. Um, but I believe in the power of prayer, and I believe it's on us to pray into the situation. Psalm 122, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem or peace in Jerusalem. May those who love you be, secu- be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Okay, I think praying for peace for Israel is something that we should be doing. Again, it's not because we hate the Palestinians. We don't hate the Arabs. We love the Arabs. God's doing, I believe, amazing things amongst the Arabs. Okay, I have great hope that there is going to be a great revival in the Middle East. Um, we should continue to pray for the, pray for the Arabs and peace. You know, um, f- between the Arabs and the Jews. This is this is prophesied. There will be great peace, right? There will be a highway connecting Egypt and Syria, and they will worship the Lord together with Israel. That's a prophecy from Isaiah that will happen. There will be great reconciliation between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. There will be reconciliation, and this is something that we should absolutely be praying for. Um, If you want to financially give, I would absolutely support that. There is um, a group called the International Fellowship of Christian and Jews. You can look up their website. That would be an area that I would recommend that we support giving. Um, And the main thing is, is that we as Christians understand that we we have a battle to fight. Okay, we should absolutely be um, forceful and vocal in our support of the Jewish people and against anti-Semitism, understanding that we're going to share in in that persecution if we do that. Okay, you, you don't know what the persecution is until you stick your foot into it. <laughs> okay, that's how this works. All right, but if you're talking about the, the who are the victims of hate crimes in America, the number one group is Jews. Okay, they're the number one victim of hate crimes in America. And most people don't know that because they don't publicly defend Jews. But if you do, you will start getting some hate in this area because it's absolutely a spiritual thing. You'll get hate from Christians too, okay? But I would encourage you, this is this is something that we should do, all right? Um, let's support the Jewish people and let's continue to believe uh, they're beloved for the sake of the patriarchs, all right? God's calling and his gifts are irrevocable, Let's continue to pray for them, that there would be a revelation of Jesus the Messiah. We believe this is going to happen. You know, um, that Jesus will return. His his feet right, will stand on the Mount of Olives. And, you know, his people will look on him and mourn over one, um, over the one that they have pierced. Mourning for is an only son, right? They're going to mourn as they understand, um, you know, what they missed out on for hundreds of years, and this isn't going to be an I told you so situation for Christians, okay? This is going to be a welcoming of our brothers and our sisters, okay, that God loves, that they have a, a wonderful place in his kingdom, all right? And we're believing and hoping for this, the mass salvation of the Jewish people. We believe this is a promise that is given in Scripture, as Paul prophesied in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved, okay? This is our, our hope. Um, and until then, 
let's support the nation of Israel through this conflict. Um, because look, as as the Israelis launch their counteroffensive, we can expect that this widespread support that, you know, that's the main sentiment that you're hearing right now, it's going to diminish. Okay, there is going to be more calls, you know, blaming Israel for everything that's going to happen. All right, and I think what we need to do as Christians is we need to stand firm in our support for the nation of Israel and continue to pray for them. Okay, all right, hope that's helpful to understand a little bit of this conflict and why we should try and see it from a, a biblical perspective, all these things. All right, okay, God bless.